Hey there. Welcome back to Great Quarter, guys. This is episode 54, our first episode of the new year. Welcome to 2021. I'm glad to be here. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. I've got Seth home with me, my partner in crime, as always. Today, we're going to talk about Amit Maracharas, uh, who he is an analyst for Deutsche Bank. He's been covering the transportation space for nearly 20 years, and he says he wrote his 2021 outlook. It's his most bullish ever. So we're going to break that down, what his outlook entails, why he's so bullish, uh, and give our opinions on his outlook as well. Before we do that, we're going to run through You Care or Nah. Uh, this, I guess we can do an official farewell to Dan Lebetard. He had his last day at ESPN yesterday, so uh, I'll miss you. Uh, whatever you do, I'll be following you. But before we do that, we can just talk that, uh, you know, 2021 is off to a very wild start. We have President-elect Biden all but guaranteeing $2,000 uh, checks last night to a group of Georgia voters should they flip the Senate today. We have one of the world's most famous and richest Chinese entrepreneurs, Jack Ma. He was presumed missing uh, after three months of, of not coming out of hibernation. It turns out that he's laying low, whatever that means, uh, in, in China. And then we also have the New York Stock Exchange said it would delist three Chinese telecom companies uh, only to retract that four days later. So we got a lot going on in 2021. It's picking right up where 2020 left off. Uh, Seth, one question for you before we get into you care or not. I saw McDonald's is coming out with a new fried chicken sandwich. They're getting into the chicken sandwich wars with, uh, with Popeyes and uh, Chick-fil-A. Or would you try that, the chicken sandwich, or would you want the new Chipotle cauliflower rice? They're going for the, the keto-friendly version of rice. That's a tough one. Um... I mean, I really like Popeye's and Chick-fil-A chicken sandwiches, so I, I think I'm going to go with that one, but I'm also a big fan of Chipotle, as we were talking about, both as a company and the way it's run, and I, I like the food, actually. Yeah, great food. Yeah, I love Chipotle. I'm really excited to try that cauliflower rice, because I like cauliflower rice, but every time I make it, it's disgusting, so hopefully they make some better stuff than me. All right, so let's run through our own gauntlet of interest, you care or not. I'll give you a topic, an event, or an idea. You tell me you care or not and why. So the first one is about Norwegian electric car sales. So the sale of electric cars in Norway overtook those powered by petrol, diesel, or hybrid engines last year. EVs made up 54.3% of the new cars sold in Norway in 2020, up from 42% in 2019, and up from a mere 1% 10 years ago. Seth, you care or not? I care. And uh, I think I've told you before, my brother actually lives in Oslo, Norway. I did not remember that. No. And so I know a lot about this. Does he, does he have an electric car? He has one of the Audi uh, sport utility vehicle station wagon that I believe it's either a hybrid or an, or an EV. I'm not sure. But um, those are really popular over there, along with the Model 3s. Uh, the, the one that he has is almost it's almost like a uh, Subaru Outback station wagon. And oh, the cool. reason why people like those is um, you can put the skis on top right. and, and do all that. But um, you know, what I would say about Norway is just Norway is an extremely well-run country in general. They're very forward-looking. Uh, now, a lot of that, I have these debates with my brother, is because they have 7 million people and they have trillions of dollars in, in sovereign wealth from these oil funds. But the way that they're moving forward in terms of diversifying both their economy, so they're taking all this oil money and they're not really hypocritical. They're investing all the cash flow from you know the legacy oil money into you know EVs and um, when you go to when you go to Norway you see Teslas everywhere I mean just absolutely everywhere everybody drives them so I'm not surprised by this you know 55% of the cars sold there that's huge Impressive. and they want to be they want to be um, completely carbon free by 2025 and I actually think unlike a lot of these things that we see as far as like trucking and um, you know these goals that are thrown out there that one actually seems like somewhat realistic because they ended the quarter with 67% of vehicles sold were EVs. So, uh, and, I, and I just know, having seen them myself, uh, they're, they're wildly popular over there. So, um, yeah, I do care. 
Yeah, I care about this one as well. I wanted to mention, yeah, I, it's probably that exact Audi model or a similar Audi model. I can't remember. That was the number one selling car. Uh, it took over Model 3 this year. So uh, the Model 3 was the second uh, most sold car there in Norway. But yeah, like you said, they're expecting, they're projecting 65% of all new cars sold in Norway in 2021 to be battery electric vehicles. Yeah, That's remarkable. you know, the only, if, if I were going to throw cold water on this story, the only thing I'd say is, I don't know if you looked at the annual sales of vehicles in Norway. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's, it's like, like 150,000. Yeah, not very um, many. <laughs> just to put that in context, the U.S., uh, the SAR is what's seasonal annual adjusted rate. Uh, we sell like 17 million. Yeah, each of the and, last five years. And globally, years. it's like between 80 and 100 million, and China's like 20-something million. So it's a drop in the bucket. It's a tiny market. But, you know, you got to think, as you said, it's a forward-looking country. It's where we expect other countries to follow in, in line. It may take a couple decades, but we, th we hope the U.S. will get there one day. We know it will get there. We know that the, the fossil fuels are a finite resource, and eventually we'll get to zero use of them, but it's, you know, going to be decades away. All right, but yeah, we both care about that one. Uh, very interesting. The next one is also about EVs. So Foxconn is officially getting into the EV business. We discussed this a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Apple getting into cars. Foxconn is their main producer for the, for the iPhone. Uh, they were expected and kind of rumored to be involved in the potential of a Apple car. But uh, so Foxconn has inked a deal with another Chinese EV maker, Byton, to help produce its first vehicle. You care or not? Uh, I do care just because, you know, we talk about this this topic every week. So I might, I might as well stay on top of it. Um, you know, it, it raises a couple questions in my mind, though. Do you think you seem to imply there? Do you think this precludes them from working in Apple in any way in the future? I, I don't. I, I don't. I mean, I, it's only a $200 million deal. This company hasn't produced any cars. So it's not like they're going to ramp up and start producing 500,000 of these Byton cars in the next year. They'll still have plenty of manufacturing space. They're a you know, manufacturing powerhouse. Yeah. And the, the other thing that um, when I when I read the article from the script, um, I was a little su positively surprised. I actually liked that car. Uh, the, it, was, the SUV. It, was it was a complete Tesla knockoff, uh, but it was an attractive little car. The Chinese are making really good-looking cars. I mean, like, everybody talks about Neo uh, and, and Jiping and, uh, and a couple of the others. I mean, they, they're good-looking cars. And they're not, they're, not, they're not that expensive either. I mean, the, the Neo's a little bit more expensive. It's actually in line with Tesla. They're starting at forty dollars or $50,000. Um, by the way, have you seen Neo's uh, battery pack replacement systems in China? Uh, apparently, a third of their customers are buying Neos without the battery pack. So you, 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 they strip out the ownership of the battery pack, and you pay a subscription every month, $150 a month, to get up to six battery pack replacements. And it's really quick, man. You just load into this thing, and in four minutes, you're in and out with a brand new battery pack. Wow. So rather than recharging, you just... And apparently Tesla did think about this. They debuted this type of product in 2013, but kind of scratched it because they, they thought people wanted to own the batteries and they wanted to build out the supercharger network. You know, they're thinking longer term. But the, the idea is not... It actually carries some weight. And, and where do you switch out? So they have these, like, they look like uh, almost like a shipping container. And you just roll, you back your car into it. They do all the work. They pull your car out for you. And then you're gone in five minutes. Yeah. It's pretty it, awesome. I mean, in theory, it sounds great. You just need, need buy-in from a lot of different car makers, you know, because right now there's like 160 of these stations spread out all over China for Neo. You know, Tesla's got almost three times that in charging networks there. It's, you know, you have to have multiple companies that can use these to really make it worthwhile. It got to have some network effects. Yeah, you know, I mean, one thing that I would say as an American, uh, you know, that the Chinese are seem like they're far ahead of us in EVs, <laughs> even though Tesla has a $700 billion market cap. You know, like one to two percent of vehicle sales globally are EVs, but 
Uh, similar to the way that a lot of people in emerging markets in China and the BRICS, as they're called, yep. they kind of skipped over the, uh, the laptop or the desktop computer and they just the do everything on the mobile. Yep. When you don't have all these legacy uh, car makers that have been around for 120 years, right. you know, they're going straight to EVs and they're heavily incentivizing them. And you know, they have a lot of terrible pollution problems that uh, kind of make that expedient, but um, they're actually doing a pretty good job of it. And that electric vehicle industry is on fire over in China. Yeah, I mean, uh, just the other day when uh, the news kind of broke that Apple might be reigniting its car thing, uh, Elon Musk's number one response was, we think our biggest competition will come from China. So that's like that's why he thought it actually made sense for Apple to partner with manufacturing in China. I mean, just look at Neo. I mean, they make good cars. You know, the stock, I don't even want to talk about the stocks. It's up a thousand percent this year. But right. I mean, they, they genuinely do make really good cars. They're having strong sales. They're not profitable yet, but I think they'll get there. Yeah. All right. Uh, Back to it. Let's get back to uh, you care or not. This one is on U.S. manufacturing. So U.S. factory activity accelerated to its highest level in two and a half years in December. The Institute for Supply Chain Management, its index for activity bounced back to 60.7. That's the highest reading since October 28. And that's following a decline in November. Seth, you care or not about U.S. factory activity accelerating? Definitely care. And uh, I was reading the, the couple of page release from the uh, ISM, the Institute for Supply Management. And, you know, this is great for transportation, particularly Absolutely. LTL and rail and some of the more in industrial exposed freight mix uh, carriers. But, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff to take away from this report. Um, 61, I think you talked about it. It finished the year on a high note. So it dropped down, the ISM dropped down to 40, I believe it was in April, where it bottomed. Mm -hmm. And it is now positive for eight straight months. And it ended on a high note. And uh, it's accelerating and it crushed expectations. So, uh, you know, when you look at that, just for... You know, I'm already bullish on the consumer. We're going to talk about this later. The consumer, and now with the industrial economy, it's only 12% of the economy. The consumer is way more important. It's 70%. But for transportation, it's probably it's a little bit more important than it is to the overall economy. So definitely care. Yeah, we'll get into Maratra's uh, feelings about manufacturing. He's definitely seeing that as a catalyst, especially in the first half uh, of 2020. I agree as well. I, I definitely care about this one. And the one thing I wanted to note here is that it's actually it's a global uh, rebound. The the same you're getting very similar numbers out of China and, and out of all of Asia and out of Europe as well. <clears throat> IHS market came out with their advanced PMI for the Eurozone, and it was at its highest level in two and a half or three years. So this seems to be a global rebound in manufacturing, which is, you know, which is great. It's amazing for trucking. We talk about how, you know, you and I, I think, are on the same page expecting there to be a consumer drop, at least a good spending drop off at some point in 2020. You know, I, I, at some point in 2021, I think that just when services are readily available to us, there's a you lot mean of, on the good side, yeah, right? on the good side, yeah, I think. Yeah. The, the good side of consumer spending, I think we'll see a mix shift back to services. Yeah, I expect overall consumer spending to yeah, be to continue quite to positive. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree with that completely. But yeah. you know, there has to be uh, there has to be some mix shift back to services on the consumer side of things. So I think from a trucking perspective, this is this is going to act like a really great support uh, in the back half of the year when that spending comes. Correct. Down. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Cool. All right. Uh, number four is we'll, make, we'll get a little stretch here to some streaming. This one's on Roku, uh, one of our favorite companies. They are in advanced talks to purchase the library of content from short-lived and short video format provider Quibi. The terms of the deal are undisclosed currently. Seth, what do you think of this? You care or not about Roku buying the library from Quibi? Well, Roku was my single largest uh, personal account position. I actually trimmed it in half yesterday, which I'm upset because uh, Wells today. Fargo <laughs> put out like a $415 price target and it's raging today. Um, but, you know, 
so much has gone right for Roku over the last year. I mean, what's crazy is Roku was, yeah, I think it bottomed at around 60 or $70 back in March or April, and it's pushing 350 right now. So I felt a little bit greedy. I love the company, but it's like approaching $50 billion in market cap. Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this before we came on the show. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about this. You know, on the surface, I don't think it's a very big deal right? Because Quibi, I don't know that much about it, but it's short form video. It's supposed to be five minute stuff. They've got some B-list actors where they seem to have a little bit of a backlog in terms of pre-recorded content. So in other words, I don't know that this is going to be a huge needle mover in the short to medium term for actual engagement and uh, you know users on the Roku channel. But what I think is a bigger deal, which we can get into, is it kind of signals that, I mean, it, Roku was already in the content game, so they actually make, most people probably think they make all their money on hardware, that's not true at all. They make all their money on the software and the advertising and the, and the, and the subscription sharing revenue. Right. So anytime you subscribe to Netflix or HBO Max or whatever, they get an unspecified, most people think it's like a 15% cut. But what this announcement raises is it gets them more into the content game, and that means it gets you more I think it's a risky sort of delicate balancing act because now you're getting into uh, not only the traditional media's backyard, the uh, you know the AT&T now owns Time Warner, the Viacoms, the Discoveries, the you name it's of the world, uh, the Turners. Uh, you are now getting into the same pool as Netflix and Amazon and Apple, and you know you're you're theoretically moving you're moving that goalpost more towards competing with your customers. So you have to be careful here. And given the fact that they've already had some sort of contentious negotiations that took months to play out, and there was a lot of sort of, uh, you know, uh, stuff released to the press about how, uh, how, how tight of a battle it was, on particularly HBO Max and Peacock, I think it was. Yes. And so Roku has shown they're not afraid to go toe-to-toe with the big dogs, but I think here they just need to be careful that they don't sort of bite the hand that feeds them and anger, and anger their suppliers. Yes, that's, you know, we've, we've long loved Roku because, it's, because it is to Switzerland. It is the neutral platform. It, they don't encroach on anybody's field, but here they are doing so. And that's, that's my only worry. I just... It's expensive table to sit at. I mean, if you want to sit really to make content that can that can compete with Amazon, that compete with Netflix and, and HBO, you got to spend billions every year. Netflix is spending three billion three billion dollars per quarter on content. It's actually more than that. The Wall Street Journal said that. I think Netflix is spending at least fifteen billion this okay, year. So, and by the way, that's growing fifty or one hundred percent every year. Exactly. So, uh, and and just to put that in context, yeah, I mean, Roku's quarterly revenue, even though the the company. As the stock is way up, they only have three billion in quarterly revenue. So even if they didn't run their business and spent a hundred percent of revenue on content, uh, that's what it would take to keep up with the and, and then some to keep up with the Netflixes of the world. So what what do you think? How do you think Netflix, Amazon, Hulu? How do you think they take this news? Do you, do you think they see it as any s- type of threat, or is it just hard know? to say? But uh, have you ever watched interviews with Roku's CEO Anthony Wood? No. He, uh, I would suggest go go look him up on YouTube. He, this is a, you, do you know what Roku stands for? I don't actually. It's Japanese for six, uh, I believe, and it's the sixth company that Anthony Wood has founded. Ah, oh, so uh, And if you go watch him and you listen to the earnings calls and um, you, there's some good presentations on YouTube, he's kind of an aggressive guy and he's forward looking and he saw 
he's seen a couple of markets. So he's not that different from Reed Hastings in terms of personality. If you know Reed, Reed is very, uh, I love Reed Hastings. He's aggressive and he's not afraid, uh, you know, to build his company and take big risk and do all the, it's the same sort of guy. So it's two, it's very strong personalities. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, going up against each other. So I have no idea. Uh, I think a lot of these, particularly the apples of the world and the Amazons, uh, play their cards extremely close to the vest. We talked about that with the car announcement. Yep. I mean, Apple won't even come out and say anything about whether or not they're involved I really, I really didn't all. think we would hear something else. You know, in the past, you know, three, two weeks or three weeks that we've, since that news came out about Apple, I thought we would hear something from them or at least a leak, you know, from something inside. The only, the last... I, well, is no statement a statement? Yeah, right. How much do you read into them not making any statement? I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew. Tight-lipped. Uh, yeah, the only the last thing we're going to mention on Roku, I don't I don't think we mentioned it. This this deal is really low risk from like a, from a, a cost standpoint. They're probably going to pay pennies on the dollar from what it costs to produce this content. So they could get. But I also was wondering, you know, let's say they had uh, forty shows, whereas Netflix might have forty shows, and that's four thousand hours of content. Like they might get forty shows and get like you know four hundred minutes of content. And I wonder how the how the actual hour to time breaks down of what they're buying. You know, if they're but they're buying this big catalog from Quibi, but I wonder how much actually minutes or hours of content since it's so for sh- short form. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but obviously this the strategic, I don't know if I said it well, but the strategic importance of this is probably more than or, the more actual risk, yes. importance. And, you know, they're just trying to increase that flywheel where, you know, the margins on the advertising and the, uh, they're a lot better than selling hardware, which is a razor razor blade model. And so they're always trying to push that, the business to more users, more engagement, you know, to, to promote the flywheel and, and drive the margins. So I think that's what they're doing here. But uh, I don't know. It will be interesting to watch. They may end up getting in, a, getting in a spat with one of their big customers here. All right. Let's get into uh, our main conversation. So we're going to talk about Amit Maratra, who is the managing director and head of transportation and shipping research at Deutsche Bank. We're going to talk about his 2021 outlook. He said in almost his 20 years of analyzing companies and industry, his outlook report for 2021 is the most bullish he's ever written. He says, we, bo- we have high confidence that the demand trends will surprise materially to the upside. Seth, you want to go through a couple of those uh, demand trends and then we'll kind of discuss after you name them? Sure. Um, first of all, are you as bullish as he is? I'm not as bullish as he is. Uh, I'm Me not. M- maybe in the fir- maybe in the first couple quarters, I think we have some lingering effects where consumer demand is still, you know, relatively strong from a historical standpoint. You know, usually Q1 is pretty weak for consumer uh, demand. But I think just given the fact that we still can't go to the movies, we still can't go to concerts, there's still all of these services that we typically spend our money on are not available to us. I still think people with the additional stimulus check, the possibility of a third stimulus check, I think there's enough momentum there to keep consumer spending high. But I, I'm not as bullish as he is. Yeah, I'm not either but let's get into like sort of the elevator pitch for why he's so bullish basically it's a lot of the usual stuff uh really tight capacity Mm -hmm. right uh and and by the way he's bullish on truckload ltl parcel and rail pretty much every sector basically everything in transportation so but within truckload um i think that his bullet points here and i'm looking on our script here uh, so you said demand will surprise materially to the upside. And why does he think that? Well, in, in short, he thinks that both the consumer economy and the industrial economy are going to be on fire yep. next year. Correct. And I think we're already starting. Uh, we've already seen that. Well, consumer was starting to wane, but we've got that next round of stimulus that it went helps. out the $600 checks and the extra 300. So I think that's well, I, th- I expect to see acceleration and really good results out of most uh, retailers coming up, uh, at least until the vaccine. But then the other thing that he looks, he's looking at is, um, 
you know, within industrial, right, he's predicting really rapid demand growth for refined oil products. Now, a lot of that's going to depend on people going back to work and vaccines because a lot of that oil is used not only in 18-wheelers, but airplanes and yep. automobiles. Yep. So that is one of his things. The other thing is, um, you know, I, I'm also bullish on this. Uh, even the traditional automakers I'm bullish on. Auto production is supposed to be up over 20% year on year. So that's that's good news for all. Yeah, and a lot of that gets transported on the rails as well. Yeah, the only thing I was going to mention there before you keep going is that if you look at inventory levels uh, for vehicles, they're at its lowest point in in, in, a, in a bunch of years. I mean, they got dwindled down because, you know, uh, factories were shut down pretty much all of March, April, and May. So, uh, and then the the respond, rebound, and demand kind of just dwindled inventories down uh, at at the dealerships and everything else. So, yeah. Right. So you get that double bang for your buck. You're saying the, seeing the same thing with, uh, with steel inventories? Like those got really washed out. And so you get, when you come out of a recession and inventories are low and demand returns, you sort of get that double bang for your right. buck on, on revenue and earnings. But uh, moving into his last bullet point here on the industrial side is Boeing. So a lot of, I don't think a lot of American con, uh, consumers and the general public knows just how gigantic Boeing is. Uh, Jim Cramer was talking about it yesterday. If you, if you heard him, they employ 2 million people. <laughs> it's remarkable, dude. Yeah, and, and I, in his article, he talked about how most of the 737s are produced in Kansas and then are taken by rail to be final finishing in Seattle or in, in Washington. So, I mean, just that, that project alone, that rail line, the, the amount of money and the amount of just billions of dollars that flow through that line uh, is it's unconceivable if you don't know about the company well, and just, the size. Yeah, let's put that in context. So I think there's 2 million truck drivers in the U.S., and I think that's more than Amazon has in terms of employees. It is. Got, uh, they, well, they're encroaching, I think Amazon's they're encroaching close, quickly. But, yeah. but maybe but yes. a million and a half or something. Um, so anyways, he likes Boeing, and Boeing, obviously, the 737 MAX, I don't know if they're dropping the MAX or not, but um, it's back uh, in commercial flight, and it's being the order book is building back up again. Quickly. Boeing's repairing their balance sheet, and uh, especially with uh, uh, Biden coming in the White House, a lot of people think that you know Chinese the Chinese have a lot of growth for uh, and secular growth for air travel, yep. and so a lot of people think that the Chinese will start ordering planes uh, from Boeing again and Airbus. But um, once once this is all going, so that's all good. Wrapping it up here, though, he also likes on the consumer front. He says. Uh, a surge in consumer activity from a re release in pinup demand. That's my only point. That's my only place where I'd push against him here is that I just we've seen that release of pinup demand. We saw that throughout the entire back half of the year with e-commerce and with, uh, with, with you know with re with consumer spending. Yeah. I don't know how much more pent up demand there there Agreed. can possibly be. I think there's tremendous services yes, uh, pent up demand. Like I'm dying to go on a vac vacation and go to mm -hmm. on a flight and spend money at hotels and restaurants and all that. But like, how many more goods do you really need? Yeah. To, do you really need? You've probably stocked up on most everything. So, I have a little bit of a disagreement with there. Now he might, he might, he may, he might be thinking something else. Uh, I'm not sure. But, um, anyways, the last thing is the inventory restocking. He points that out. That's still got legs. Definitely. Uh, a lot of people think that you know. How does that have a full year of legs, or is it more of a first half 2021 story? Yeah, I think and that, he said that, I first, think I think he said first first two quarters he sees strong inventory restocking. Um, that that's going to keep carrying us. I mean, I wrote about this. I think there's going to be a major inventory correction in the first half of the year, maybe throughout 2021. People are having, I mean, retailers are dwindled their inventories down to 
far below pre-COVID levels. And then you have all of these catalysts that, that are you know forcing retailers to hold more inventory. And it, one of them, e-commerce, is the same thing that dwindled inventories in 2020. Now that people like Target and Walmart and all these other companies are, are retooling and pivoting their back rooms to uh, fulfill online orders, they're having to hold more inventory at stores. All of this you know travels downstream. And I, think, I, th- I do think there's going to be a correction in inventory, which will help trucking and keep the, keep the party going. By the way, and, and a lot of this, all this stuff that we're talking about, and, um, you know, I've listened to a lot of conference calls. I was listening to, I've listened to like 20 transportation conference calls. Just, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to, to the Borsa <laughs> Earnings uh, app. Have you ever no, used that? I, no, I haven't. It's excellent. And you can, you can listen to all these conference calls. But one thing all the transportation executives pointed out, and it is riveting to me. I actually really enjoy it. Um, I know Which you is do. funny. Uh, <laughs> but um, So... A lot of the we're, we're talking about the V-shaped rebound in inventory, and so what it was just so fast that everyone you had to really batten down the hatches and preserve liquidity and and take in your working capital because the world was absolutely shutting down. Yeah, GDP was going down by 30, 35 percent. Uh, you know, people were getting laid off everywhere. Like it literally looked like the world was going to end, and so everybody drew in that inventory. And then all of a sudden, we got a snapback in consumer spending driven by stimulus. So you had the net effect of all of this is that you had you know like the shortest, deepest stock market correction in his in history. Not the deepest, but the the shortest and the deepest at the same time got killed yep. down by thirty five or forty percent, and then came right back. And then you're seeing the same thing at a little bit of a lag in the real economy. And so now 2021 sets up pretty good because as we talked about, you're rebuilding all those inventories, but it got supply chains way out of whack. It got inventories way out of whack. It got warehousing, uh, you know, the way goods flow through the global real economy. Uh, just, yeah, that's why you had all this tight capacity in 2021. So we're still dealing with all the after effects of all that. Definitely. Uh, one thing here to note on just on the restocking thesis. So he uses Target as an example. Uh, he does inventory to stay inventory to store uh, inventory at each store is up nine point five percent year over year. But the same store sales is up 20 percent year over year. So that gives you an implied sales to inventory spread of eleven hundred basis points. He says there are similar numbers at Walmart, uh, Dollar General and Tractor Supply. So that's kind of his his data there saying that most of these companies are growing same store sales much faster than they're growing inventory per store. So that's kind of where he sees a lot of the restocking uh, to come from in the first half of the year. Yeah, and any any good retail analyst will tell you that type of spread is really healthy for gross margins, which drives earnings power at right, retail. Right, so is that just so that they don't have to discount They can much? do full price selling because yep. there's there's more demand for those goods. And, you know, if you have too much inventory, you got to fire sale it at the end of the quarter, at the yep. end of the year. Right. Um, so that's all good. Uh, the last thing he said, and this is actually, I actually had two disagreements with him. He's pointing to this as bullish, and I, I guess I can't argue that it's bullish, but he's saying that basically because housing prices are rising so fast that all these people are taking out home equity loans. And as someone who started their career in 2007 and 2008, there's nothing that scares me more than people being greedy and cashing out and levering up and taking their equity out of their home to go out and buy stuff. Um, but I guess that in the short term, much more in the short term, I guess that's bullish for transportation. But it, it, in the long term, that's that can be worrisome. Dangerous game. Yeah. Dangerous game. So let's talk about capacity for a moment. He thinks the headwinds are here to stay. <clears throat> so he, he mentioned that, you know, in every market, there's always barriers to entry and the barriers to entry this year have risen. They've gotten uh, more difficult to climb over. That includes the drug and alcohol clearinghouse, the decline in CDL issuances, the driver training school constraints, as well as rising insurance uh, payments and rising driver wages. He says there's always a clearing price to bring more capacity in. This year, it's just, it's just higher. 
Agreed. And we've talked a lot about this. I don't think there's, you know, the new truck orders are exploding, but they're having trouble seating those. I, I don't think you can really argue with that. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, with with uh, there's two things that are going to be likely here, which is there's almost certainly going to be a mix shift back to services spending from goods. Right. And there's almost certainly going to be rising driver capacity. Yes. It's just a question of how much time that takes. And then when you lump in the fact that he's the most bullish he is in 20 years, but then he's projecting earnings in 2022 to be down 20 percent and he's way below consensus. So to me, some of that sort of feels like threading the needle a little bit um, and playing a game of chicken uh, in terms of, yes, it's extremely bullish, but how long can it last? Yeah, I loved, I loved his statement here. He was like, given the, the, the characteristics of trucking, the fact that it's highly fragmented and the fact that there's, albeit rising, but very low barriers to entry, he says, it's never different this time. It's, it's always the same. Right. And that's, you know, we, we talked about this back when we first started seeing those uh, new truck orders in, in October and November. We're like, is this time different? Are, are carriers going to learn? Are they not going to overbuy? And he's saying no, uh, but it's but, the fact that the higher high, uh, the, 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 the earning cycle can go higher over time, but the low comes, comes worse as well. Right. And I think what he's saying there is if you evaluate these, these public companies on normalized earnings, which is across a full cycle, then theoretically the, the, the stock should gain and the company should gain value because its earnings power each cycle is growing. And I get that. Um, so anyways, what, what else do you want to talk about? we got about one minute before we... Uh, I got a question for you. So if uh, this is about, this is my, my point of sale on Monday, I wrote about retailers doubling down on brick and mortar. If you were Dollar General or if you were at home or Home Depot, any of these companies that, that thrived in 2020, would you be expanding uh, brick and mortar locations in 2021? Dollar General, 100%, because I know it. And they have 25,000 stores, and they put up thousands every year. And they, they have up, the best payback. Shelf? It costs a couple hundred grand to put them up, and they do like a million dollars a year in revenue. All right. Well, that is all the time we got today. We'll come back to that conversation uh, soon. But I want to thank everybody for paying for, for tuning in. Go to FreightWaves. Uh, Go to FreightCast on on Spotify or Apple Podcast to subscribe to everything we got. We'll be back next Tuesday at 3 o'clock. See you then.